Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 17. Philippians chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 17. This is the servants class number 3. And I've entitled our Bible study, Serving and Supporting Your Pastors and Leaders. Each class builds on one another. They're very much intertwined. And today we want to learn how to serve and support the pastors and leaders that God has put over our lives. It is true, there's no question, that in our Christian service, as a doulos, that was a Greek word we learned last time, or as a diakonos, another Greek word describing service, there is no question whatsoever that in our ministry and service, we serve Jesus Christ. He alone is our pastor. He is singularly the chief shepherd. He is our leader, and there can be no question about that. The church belongs to him. It's bought by his blood, sealed by the resurrection. He's the one that builds his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. No question whatsoever. However, I have met over the many years I've had the privilege to serve in this church and also my home church, I've met people that have used the truth that Jesus is our chief shepherd as a way of justifying their lack of submission to the God-appointed spiritual leadership God gave them in a local congregation. You say, Ed, what do you mean? Well, when someone doesn't agree with something or doesn't want to do something, I've literally heard this. This is a quote that has been spoken to me eye to eye where someone didn't agree with a direction or they were asked to do something, they didn't want to do it, and they literally told me, I serve God and not you. Now, that is true in many ways. You do serve God. However, it's not possible to serve God in rebellion to local leadership. It's, it's a, it, it doesn't go, it's like Peter saying, it's like Peter saying, not so, Lord. That doesn't make sense. God has appointed leadership in his church, so when you serve God, the way you serve God many ways in the local congregation is by serving the leaders that God has put in your life. And so when there's resistance to serving the leaders in your life and supporting them, there's always division and chaos and confusion. And when that occurs in a local church, the devil always wins. Just remember that. The devil loves to fish in troubled waters. And one of the ways waters get troubled in a local church is by a lack of submission to the leadership that God has appointed. Let's make the biblical point first. The Bible teaches very clearly, unequivocally, that God has ordained spiritual leadership in his church. Another way of looking at it is you could say there is a clear chain of command within the ministry. You can jot them down. I'll read them to you. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you 
and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I like how the NLT pulls out a portion of this. The NLT would say, likewise, you younger people, you must accept the authority of the elders. This is an important truth to keep at the forefront of our serving, that we are co-laboring together for the work of the kingdom. When you think of co-laboring, I want you to think of this. When you hear the word co-laboring, I want you to think of partnership. So much of ministry is a partnership. Even companies today are changing the titles of those that serve and they'll call them partners because it's such a valuable understanding that we're in this together. I also want you to think when you think of co-laboring, I want you to think of joining a team. It takes a team. We're, We're collaborating together as a team. And I think a team is a really good illustration because you have different roles, different positions, different places. And in order for a team to be successful, everyone has to do what they are supposed to do, where they're supposed to do it as a team, co laboring, collaborating is also something that we would use. Uh, A phrase that we like to say around here at Calvary is we lock shields. We're in this together. We're side by side fighting the real enemy, not each other. Or another phrase that we like to use here to describe this thought is a Bible study. I did a Bible study on this entitled, we is the language of ministry. We is the language of ministry. None of us do anything alone. We do it together. And the more together we are, the more progress we can make for the kingdom. Submission to leadership is vital. Another way of thinking of this is to never forget that we are all under authority. Not some of us, but all of us. And when we speak of authority, we have to remember that God desires our submission to authority. Now this is a good time to pause And let's broaden the subject just a little bit because it's a very difficult subject to talk about. And I know that some of you have strong feelings surrounding authority and leadership and submission because in previous authority structures that you have witnessed or you have experienced, you have seen horrible abuses by those in positions of authority. It could be a previous church you went to where there was a a gross abuse uh, happening from the highest levels of leadership. It it could be a home you grew up in where it was indeed dysfunctional and, and your father or your mother perhaps hurt you or abused you or took advantage of you. It could be an experience you had at work. And, and, and here's the thing. It, what, what it did was it put deep down inside of you a resistance to authority because you're carrying around the pain. And you're carrying around the injury. And so that has caused you to have strong feelings about this. Maybe even you're known as kind of like the rebel or the resistant. And and it's because you've been hurt before. So let me just clarify and make sure you understand. Listen very carefully. Where there is abuse and pain, your submission to God takes precedent. You are under no obligation to submit to abusive painful leadership. None whatsoever. 
especially in the name of God. However, where there is godly leadership, that is to be matched with godly submission. There really is no other choice. Because I would say among all the abuses and the hurts that happen in churches specifically, godly leadership far outweighs bad leadership. Now there is bad leadership and there are mistakes being made and there is pain and hurt even in this church through all the years that we've been here, even through decisions I've made. And yet God is gracious to help us through them. God is gracious to help us learn. He's gracious to receive humble and repentant hearts. And, and on the same point, as we learn in Ezekiel, if there's no repentance, God will not allow it to continue. It, it will not. He will replace those shepherds. He will take them out and replace them with shepherds after his own heart, as we learned in our last class. But let me repeat this. This is so important to your success in serving God. Where there is godly leadership in the church, there is also to be godly submission. Otherwise, there's disorder, confusion, and chaos And ultimately, none of us want that. None of us want that in our church. Submission comes very naturally when there is like-mindedness. That's a core value of our church, like-mindedness. Like-mindedness is not conformity or forced obedience. Like-mindedness, in a definition, you could say that we, like-mindedness means we generally see things the same way. We don't see everything the same way, but that's okay. But we generally see most things the same way. And because of that, we're not going to argue about things that are going to hold us back. We're just going to agree to disagree in a very loving, caring way. And we're going to move forward for the cause of Christ. There is a greater cause than our disagreements. And that is for the gospel to reach the lost and lives to be transformed. So like-mindedness, I mean, you think about it. It's necessary in every area of life. You need like-mindedness in your marriage. You need like-mindedness in your friendships. You need like-mindedness with your kids. You need like-mindedness with your coworkers. I, I mean, you think of, there's like-mindedness is such a core of healthy relationships, but it's not like you have to be like someone. Like you have to, you have to conform to this church. That's not like-mindedness. You have to be like the pastor. That's not like-mindedness. Well, this is how we've always done it. And this is the movement of God. You have to be, that's not like-mindedness. Like-mindedness is we're in the Spirit, and the Spirit brings unity, and we fight to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 2, and we see an example of this here. Philippians chapter 2. Like-mindedness was super important to Jesus. He spent three years recruiting, retaining, and training the disciples and the ladies, the men and women that would carry on the mission of the church. Three years he invested in them. He instructed them, he guided them, he corrected them so that they would grow in like-mindedness. Paul the Apostle, he looked for like-mindedness as well as we see here as he's writing to the Philippians. Notice in verse one he says, therefore if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Mark that word. Mark that word. You can circle it and write the words that we've already mentioned right next to it. Team. Right, me- right next to it. Co-laboring or collaborating. Right next to it. Team. Teammates. Partners. 
That's what this word means. It actually comes to us from two Greek words that mean equal and soul. And the idea here is unity, harmony, and agreement. Another way of saying this is to be activated by the same motives or to be of like character. So he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Notice, having the same love and being of one accord and one mind. I mean, this is pretty interesting, all the words surrounding like-mindedness. From verse 1, there's encouragement, which is what consolation means, a comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, mercy, joy in verse 2, having the same love, being of one accord or unity, uh, and having one mind. So we're generally going in the same direction because we think the same way, we love the same way, we encourage the same way, because the Holy Spirit's in all of us. And we have our own personalities, and we're lived out in our own upbringing, but like-mindedness, man, we're going together. Together so important. And then he gives some instruction on how. He says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You can just write this over your service here. You step into serving in this church, don't let anything be done in your service through your selfishness or your conceit. I mean, that'll help you, that'll propel us so far in our service if we would just go in selfless. But instead, he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then he jumps in, gives the example of the humility of Jesus, uh, the eternal son of God coming down, taking the form of a human being, dying on a cross. And then he says in verse 19, notice, but I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. And this is what like-mindedness doesn't look like, because everyone seeks their own and not the things that are of Christ Jesus. So if we fulfill, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, like-mindedness is right on the heels of that. When you seek the things of Christ, God puts his heart in you. Like he said in Ezekiel, remember, I'm going to give you shepherds, I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you that pastor's heart. I'm going to take care of you because I love you. Like-mindedness is so important. Paul, so, he values like-mindedness so much that he says, to take care of the church in Philippi, I'm going to send Timothy to you. The only guy that thinks like me. The only guy that I trust. At the time that Paul wrote this, he was sitting in a prison. And his encouragement came from Timothy. So basically what he's saying is we're so like-minded... I can't go to you. It's impossible. But I'm going to send my only source of encouragement. I would rather be alone in prison by sending someone that thinks like me, that loves like me, that serves like me to take care of you and to minister to you than I would to take that encouragement myself. I mean, that's a closeness of relationship that God wants to build in all of us as we serve him together. With that in mind, let's go back to Exodus now, chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, as we study now a time in the life of the leadership of Moses, as he is leading the children of Israel, they come to a place where they are attacked and lives are threatened. And we find in this example of Moses, a beautiful picture of like-minded leadership, even in the old covenant, even before the blood of Jesus Christ is shed, because God is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever, his heart for like-mindedness began in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. 
They were, come, they were to come together and know one another in unity, to be together, to fight for one another, to, to know that someone has your back and is watching out for you when seeing things that you can't see and doing things for you that you can't do. Can you imagine a church filled with men and women or just looking out for one another? It's God's will for our lives. And you can't stop a church like that. But a church that's fighting and divided and I don't like this and I don't like that, what a waste of time. And let me tell you something, what a waste of a life to go through life criticizing everything all the time. It does nothing, only makes things worse. And you'll see there's even an opportunity here where criticism could totally take away the opportunity to partner together in ministry. So pick up with me in verse 8, and let's see this in action. Exodus 17, verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. The nation of Israel being attacked, this is life and death here. These are life and death issues. If they lose this battle, many lives will be lost. Kids will be kidnapped. It's a horrible situation. And the Amalek come, the Amalekites come to attack. And I don't have time to develop this. I've done it in another Bible study. But it's important for you to realize that the Amalekites here, this group of people, they become a picture and a type of the flesh. Because there's a broader lesson in this section besides just the unity of leadership and the submission to leadership, but there's a broader lesson of how the flesh always attacks and how you're always going to have to deal with your flesh, always going to have to deal with the temptation of your flesh. And you can't compromise with your flesh. You've got to wipe it out. As the New Testament would say, you have to reckon the old man dead. And I think it's a great illustration for service that you can't serve God in the flesh. You need to walk in the spirit, trusting in God, and you got to deal with the flesh. You can't make excuses for it. You can't coddle your flesh. You can't feed your flesh. You can't compromise with your flesh. And we see this when the flesh shows up to attack, God wipes it out. And that's the same thing he wants for you. Notice in verse 9, there's really no more information given to us other than the scenario and then the response. So we don't know what the rest of this conversation is, but what was given to us is simply in verse nine, Moses said to Joshua, and he says a couple of things. He says, first of all, choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Joshua, that's what you need to do, and, and just do it. And he doesn't give any explanation. He, he doesn't give, other than just there, we're being attacked, he doesn't, he's not given any more information, just go do it. And can I say, this is a place of great temptation for people that serve, especially in the church, when they're told to do something or asked to do something, but aren't given all the information. This is a great place where people cop an attitude about, well, I don't like this and I don't want to do this. And they want explanation after explanation. But it reminds me, listen, if you want to serve the Lord, you want to be effective. You ready? Do what you're told to do. How's that? Do what you're told to do or do what you're asked to do. And do what you're told to do the way you were told to do it. That's very important. You may not know what's going on behind the scenes. And you may never know. It may be something in an area of confidentiality or something. You may never know what's happening. But you have to have the kind of trust in the leadership that God has placed over your life. You have to realize God has placed these leaders in your life. You didn't choose them. 
God chose them for you, and he's going to use them in their life. Here, Joshua, because the second thing he tells them is, is Joshua, you get the men and you go fight, and I'm going to go up to the highest, safest place, and I'm just going to be up on the hill. I mean, can you imagine Joshua and his response? Can you imagine? What do you mean? What are you talking about? I'm going to fight. Why don't you come fight with us? Why are you going to the top of the hill? What do you mean? You're going to put my life at stake so you can be up on the hill and have a little barbecue or whatever. Like, who knows what he was saying? Who knows what he could have said? But that's not what he said. The right response when being given direction in the church is here in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him. That's the best response leading in the church. Again, let me clarify. If you're asked to do something simple or sinful, the answer is no. And no, no way. If you're asked to compromise or something that would not glorify God, you're being led by bad leadership or ungodly leadership, the answer is no, no, no. But Let's be, let's be honest here. Let's be clear. Most of the leadership in church is very good, very God, godly, very God-honoring. There's no reason or excuse for us to cop an attitude when we're asked to do something and then asked to do something very specifically. Because if you are going to support those that God put in your life, if you are going to come alongside to strengthen their ministry, then it has to be cooperative. It can't be his way and your way. It can't be her way and your way. It can't be their vision and your vision. It's only one vision. There's there's only one vision in a local church. It's the vision that God has given to us. There's not 10, there's not 15, there's not 40. There's only one. And we got to catch on to that and say, God, I'm willing to do it. Even though this would be hard. Hey, you go fight, go in the place of danger, but I'm going to go up on the hill. And he doesn't even really, we aren't given... The, the, the word there, except that he's going to have the rod of God in his hand. And that could trigger in Joshua, hey, I know when the rod is lifted, God does great things. <laughs> I remember. So that there's enough for God to say, okay, I may not have all the answers, but I have seen God's hand on this man before, and I'm going to trust him. And that's really what's needed in ministry. We need to build trust. Trust is the currency of ministry, by the way for a lack of a better term, using currency because it's valuable to us in the world. Well, what's valuable in the church is not money. What's valuable in the church is trust. And trust is the currency of any relationship. And it's especially important that we have each other's back and we trust one another. That's why when those that are closest to you and if you have given the most trust to betray you, that's why it hurts so much. And that's why you get upset. You're like, but I trusted you. I gave you that information. I mean, we did this together. We did this together. And you did what? That's why it hurts so much. And perhaps that's even why you're withholding trust even now. Because you don't want to be hurt again. But see, that approach, that approach, there is a way to walk in wisdom towards something without taking things into your own hands. If you're withholding trust, if you're withholding obedience, if you're withholding submission, in the context of your local congregation to people that love you and demonstrated love, you are taking away your life of faith. You're no longer living a life of faith. You're living a life that you control. You want to live by faith, and it's vulnerable to live by faith. For us, it's risky because you can get hurt again. Let me just say, you will get hurt again. Pain is a part of life. In this world, you will suffer tribulation, the Bible says. But because we're going to suffer is no reason, no good reason, no bad reason 
for us to withhold ourselves from all that God wants to do through our lives. And it's usually, it's usually this area right here, the leaders and people that put in your life. I look, even leaders that, that are godly and love the Lord, but maybe have made mistakes along the way. Here, you know, you're serving with a leader that's made a mistake or has offended you or didn't say something right or make some bad joke or something that offended you. The Bible gives you direction on what to do. If your brother has offended you, go to him, you and him alone, and work it out. Work it out. Talk about it. You'd be amazed how much will happen when you just go to the brother or sister and say, you know what, what you said hurt my feelings. And the response can only be, will you forgive me? That wasn't my intent. And then God works it out and we move forward. I I think of the conference that we just held recently this week. First time ever, big step of faith for us. I mean, we, we went big and God blessed it amazingly. But if you were to hang out with us for the last few months behind the scenes, oh my, the spiritual warfare, the tension, the friction, the offenses of all this working together and this didn't work and this didn't happen and this. But you know what? We've learned to work it out, to talk about it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Why? Because we need to choose to die to ourselves so that the people will be taken care of and loved. Everyone that showed up, they didn't know about, they didn't know about, they did not need to know about all that we were going through or all the little things, big things. They didn't know. All they needed to know is to have Jesus high and lifted up that he loves them as worship leaders, creatives, tech, and everything else, and that he wants to equip them for the work of the ministry until he returns. We'll take it. The leaders and the servants will take the hits, will take the difficulties, and believe me, I'm not saying I want more of them. I'm just saying we'll take them because that's why God put us in that position. And of course we're going to make mistakes, but there's ways to rectify them and ways to solve them so that the church doesn't become all divisive and upset and and critical and everything that would cause us to stunt our spiritual growth. So here it was. It says at the end of verse 10, Moses, and now two more guys are, are, are revealed, Aaron and Hur, they go up to the top of the hill. And so it was. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek, Amalek prevailed. So you get the picture. He's up on the hill. It's a, it's, it's, the mountains there are not very big. It's a hill. He's up there overlooking the valley, and he's got his hands up perhaps like this, and he's got a rod in one hand, and it's the position of prayer. He, he's in a place interceding for, with God for the people. He's praying for them, and Moses wrote Exodus, so he looks back on this, and he says, hey, when Moses' hands were, when my hands were up, there was victory. But if I got tired and my hands started coming down, then there was defeat. And he's showing that the place of victory is always the place of prayer, but you can get tired in prayer and you can get weary in prayer. And you can, when you're doing one thing for a long time, it can be very easy to get tired. Because notice it says in verse 12, when Moses' hands became heavy, And anybody knows, if you ever tried this, to keep your hands up like this, you're not going to keep them up forever. They're going to start feeling like they're two tons hanging on your arms. And before you know it, you're like, oh, and there's nothing. Nothing changed. It's just hard with your muscles and everything. Keep them up. So his arms began to feel heavy. And what happens when his arms became heavy? His arms went down. And what happened when his arms went down? There was defeat with the children of Israel. So notice what happens in verse 12. 
His, heart, his hands are becoming heavy. They took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and her, mark these words, supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Remember last time in session number two, I shared with you one of the most important tools you have in serving God. Uh, that's in, in addition to reading all the spiritual things, reading the Bible, praying. One, one of the most important tools that you and I have in ministry is the gift of observation. Just open your eyes and pay attention because if you open your eyes and pay attention, you will see so much to be taken care of. So many people, so many situations. Just be a good observer. I see an example of this here because Moses doesn't say, hey guys, I'm getting tired, man. What's your problem? I need some help here. Give me a rock. Hold my hands. He doesn't do that. He's working against the heaviness. He's doing what God's called him to do, but it's inevitable. He's getting tired and they see it and they act on it. And it's so powerful. Like God has given you eyes and his Holy Spirit that when you see something, you could take care of it. You just go take care of it. And that's what they do. They go get a rock. They put the rock down there. They sit him down and they start to hold up his hand. So let's think about that. First, he's like this. Moses is like this. And he's like this and like this and like this. The guys rush over, put a rock. It puts him down here, but his arms are up. That's what's necessary. So he puts him down here. Sometimes I do this illustration with others. I'm gonna do it by myself. He's up here and he needs his arms. So Aaron and her, I, they have a couple options, I think. Um, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but this is my thinking. They have a couple of options. The first one is to hold his arm up like this. And they can hold his arms up like this, one here and then one here. But again, they're putting themselves in the same position. They're gonna get heavy. They need some kind of leverage to keep his hands. So this is what I think they did. I think they got down really low under the arm and they went right up in his armpit and they held his hand up with some leverage. We call that the armpit ministry. It's very stinky, very nasty. You know, Moses hasn't taken a shower in forever. The desert's hot. It's just, it's just not the place anybody wants to be. Unless you're submissive and supportive and you realize that it doesn't matter where you go, the people matter. I don't care how stinky Moses is, it doesn't matter. And that stinkiness could be a lot of different things. You know, you serve with someone and you start to see they're not a perfect person. You start to see that they don't walk on water. You see, oh man, this guy's just as normal as me. Yes, it stinks, doesn't it? But nobody wants the armor. Everybody wants the glory. Everybody wants the attention. But there's none of that. That, that, that is so, so wrong in every sense of the word. The whole lot of ministry is stinky business. Let me just, let me just say it. Like You just got to hear it this way. Ministry is hard. Sometimes it's harder than hard. Serving people in the context of the church, being a representative of Jesus, is very much like first responders, like police officers, like ER techs and ER nurses and doctors where you're dealing with people on the worst day of their life. You're stepping into with, love and hope and mercy on the worst day of their life. And you do that every day over and over and over and over again. It's hard work. 
It is not for the faint of heart. It's not like a little hobby you dabble in. You've got to really care. You have to have the heart of Jesus in you. You have to be willing to die to yourself. You want, God is calling you to take care of people's lives in some of the worst situations. And if you don't do so with love, you could do a lot of damage. And rarely people sign up for the armpit ministry. People want other things. You know, they, I, I hear this phrase, I, I kind of changed my voice for it, but like I hear this phrase, I am not called to that. Well, what, what are you called to? Like the rest of us are called to that. Why aren't you called to that? Why aren't you called to do the hard work? Why aren't you called to, to chip in? And again, as we build on other studies, it's kind of like the world. Well, I climbed the corporate ladder. I paid my dues. Uh, man, until you die on a cross and rise again, you paid nothing, man, nothing. This is all into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And the people that walk in this church, even if this is the first time someone walks into this church, and you, they deserve to be served in the love of Jesus, to get a taste of the love that God has for them. The ministry is not glamour or celebrity. There's even a new phrase today. It wasn't this way 10 or 15 years ago, but it's super popular now, and that is the celebrity pastor. Let me tell you something. There is no such thing as a celebrity pastor. You've got to pick one. You want to be a celebrity? Then go off and be a celebrity, but that's not pastoral ministry. A pastor is a shepherd and a servant who lays down his life for the flock. And so don't let the world lie to you. Don't let the church world lie to you. There's no such thing. And if you start serving in this church, because that's the sake of this, you're going to start serving in this church. You go, man, that's heavy. It is because people matter. People matter. I'm not saying you won't make a mistake. I'm not saying you won't do something wrong. I'm not saying that we're all going to be perfect. That, that's silly. That's, of course, that's not going to happen. But with the right heart, really, God will use you in ways that you haven't even imagined. It says in verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek. What Aaron and Hur saw, nobody asked them to do it. They saw it. They go, hey, man, let's take care of him. Let's go over. Let's help him. Let's support him. And, and this is a phrase I'm going to be meditating on because I was looking at this text again the last week or so. I love this phrase, and I'm just going to be meditating on it for a couple weeks in verse 12 where it says, his hands were steady. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, that just stays steady. I looked that Hebrew, or Hebrew word up. It actually means faithful. So something to do with steadiness and faithfulness, I'm going to be thinking about it. It's like so cool because that's what we want. We want our hands to be steady. We want our lives to be faithful. And, and one way I like to describe it in the life of the ministry here, especially those that might be closest to me in serving alongside of me is, is this. I need help in my ministry, God's called me to. I need help for people supporting me and lifting up my arms. What I don't need is people hanging on my arms. Does that make sense? It's going to make things worse. I don't need hanging on my arms because then I'm taken away from what God has called me to do in shepherding and pastoring. Because my responsibility as a pastor, part of it is to make life easier for you. My responsibility is to make sure you can serve better, that you're well-equipped, that you're well-cared for. Uh, my responsibility is to make sure that it's easy for you to serve, and I support you, and I steady your hands, and I don't hang on your hands. I mean, think about it. Like, like things that we might take for, take for granted, but 
Like, you, when you come to a church, you're looking for godly leadership, right? You're looking for examples. I mean, what if I came to church this week and said, I got a new revelation for you guys, just want to let you know. Um, I did the Christian thing for a while, uh, but now, I, all week, I didn't really have time to study. You know, I was partying. I went to the bars. I went to a couple raves. You know, I tried some new drugs that are legal, and I just didn't have any time. But last night, I downloaded a sermon from INeedASermon.com, so I'm just going to tell you the sermon today. And, you know, like, you know what would happen after this week and another couple of weeks of that, this place will be empty. I mean, the people that stay really need to be evangelized, but most people will leave. Because <laughs> that's not church. That's not what you expect from a pastor. Well, listen, that's not what we expect from you either. It's the same thing. You can't have one standard for the pastor and not for yourself. You have a walk with the Lord. We don't expect that for you too. So if you said, oh, you know what? I partied all week and I'm okay and I'm smoking pot during the week, but, but I'm ready to serve the kids. We don't want you to serve the kids. We don't want you anywhere near the kids like that. We don't want you teaching them that. You got parts in your life I don't want the kids to know. So like present yourself to the Lord, a living sacrifice and serve the Lord well. I mean, that's the world that we're in right now. It's gonna require more, not less for us to serve him effectively. So victory comes because the kids matter. You know, you got, you, all of us prayed today, one way or another, for little Anaya. She matters. She's going to grow up in this church. She's going to watch your life. For the time that they're here, they're going to watch your lives. And they matter. They matter to God. Jesus even said it, didn't he? Suffer the little children to come unto me. Jesus placed a high value on kids even more so. He says, hey man, it'd be better for someone to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea than to stumble one of these little ones. How much more for the children of God? So service is pretty serious. We take it seriously. It was so important that in verse 14, uh, God told Moses, write it down. He said, this is what I want you to remember. The Lord is my banner. This is the banner of what he wants to see, cooperative, collaborative teamwork. And in summary, two things before we leave. How does victory come? I want you to notice, we kind of go back. First of all, number one, there is an attack. There is an attack in the spirit. The Amalek, the Amalekites are attacking the children. There's warfare. And in the midst of that, number two, notice God spoke. God saw it and had a solution for it. And he spoke to Moses and gave Moses the instructions. You'll see this all throughout the scriptures. He gave Moses the instructions. What did Moses do? He called Joshua and he told Joshua, this is what I want you to do, go do it. Joshua did it. And then Moses said, I'm going up. And so then Moses did what he was supposed to do. And he went up, had his arms up with the staff. Then he became tired and the guys that hung out with him without any direction, they see a need and they rush over and they take care of Moses because they realize that his arms were falling, the people were, were, were being defeated and let's get that man to rest and we'll hold your arms up. We'll do this together. It's not just you, Moses. It's us. We're going to do this together because we all love the people and we all want to see them grow. And basically, you got, this is the key. When everybody does what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, the way they're supposed to do it in the context of the church, then the church cannot be stopped. I mean, it just goes with power of God. God's anointing comes down on that. And you know as well as I do, division and all, it just stunts our growth. You, sometimes, haven't you ever been, you don't have to say yes or anything or amen, don't, don't, because I don't want anybody to get in trouble. But haven't you ever just been in a conversation and you go, why are we talking about this? Why is this such a big deal? 
Why do you care about this so much? When all the sinners, sinners and lost people are walking all by us and we're arguing about, I don't think you have the right flag up there. Um, uh, I just don't think that's the right color green. Uh, I think it's a different color. Like, what? Someone's probably just busted right now. Don't, don't worry about it. I mean, silly stuff. I just caught my eye. just so silly. The Lord is doing great things. And we want to be a part of it. So let me just say this as the worship team comes back up. Let me just say this. I want to give you the number one hindrance to your effectiveness in ministry. And and it's a practical thing. I mean, obviously, the spiritual is already taken care of. You're in the word. You're praying. You have a growing walk with the Lord. You got that. And sin is an obvious one. So it's not just sin in general. This number one thing will stunt your spiritual growth and halt your progress in serving immediately. You ready for it? Write it down. You ready? Pride. Pride will stop you in your tracks. It will grieve the Holy Spirit. It will make you someone you didn't want to be. Pride will make you argumentative, resistant, unsubmissive, and it happens to us all. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord. God values humility and brokenness. You, You know, pride is so, so, so bad that the Bible has to say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's how important it is in your life. You want to be effective, walk in humility and dependence, pray for a servant's heart so that you can support your pastor and you can support your leaders with a like-mindedness that grows and grows and grows. Amen? Wow. Heavy stuff. So good. It is so good to learn how to serve. I mean, this is, this is gold right here. This is gold. This is, this is so good. If you would just put it into practice, our church will be so blessed. And so will our community. Father, thank you for the work of your spirit in us. And help us, God. We're all human. Um, and that's the, that's the problem. <laughs> We're human. We make mistakes. But God, I know there's wounded people here. I know there are people who are mad at pastors, mad at churches. Maybe not even in the room, but watching online. Um, and listening on the radio maybe, because they're not, they're not mad. I don't know, maybe they're mad at you too. It's not like, I don't know. I don't know what you're, I don't know all the feelings, but I know there are people angry, which kind of holding them back because they got burned and they didn't forgive. And I think that's a key. So I just pray forgiveness into their hearts so they could be released from their own bitterness and they could be released from their own um, pride, really. Maybe it was a dysfunctional home that caused such great pain. And just as a little kiddo, little daughter, little son, they don't really have any power or control over it, God. Just pray comfort and healing in their hearts. It could be the last church they were at. It could be this church, God. That there just be a willingness to resolve it. And let's, let's be serious about our failures and let's be serious about our mistakes and submit ourselves to you so you get all the glory for the great things you have done. And so we admit to you our humanity, God. We admit to you that without you, we are nothing. But with you, we can be, you know, without you, we can't do anything. But with you, we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us. So as people are watching or listening to this, enlist them in the ministry. And let's serve until you return. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. 
For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.